Welcome to a cold, clear day in Plymouth for the Planet Earth podcast. I'm Richard Hollingham, and in our first podcast of 2013, conserving basking sharks, predicting climate disasters, and how humans aren't the only species to make lists of things to do. As humans, we are the ultimate planners, so from an evolutionary perspective, it's really interesting to try and investigate which other primate species might be able to plan. I'm on some rocks above the small beach overlooking the vast natural harbour of Plymouth Sound. The calm sea is, well, barely glinting under a very weak sun today, but the scenery is truly beautiful with the cliffs on either side and a few boats out in the distance. But the sea, well, it's unrelentingly grey and uniform. But the the creatures that live here and out in the oceans know that some areas have far more food than others. Fish are particularly fond of ocean fronts where masses of warm and masses of cold water meet, as these tend to contain large quantities of plankton. Well, Peter Miller from the Plymouth Marine Laboratory has been studying these ocean fronts and he's with me. Peter, just give me some more detail about what these are. Well, the ocean fronts are a bit like atmosphere fronts. In the atmosphere, you get warm and cold air meeting. It's similar in the ocean. You get a big mass of cold water meeting warmer water. And along that dividing line, you get mixing processes. And that mixing can keep nutrients coming to the surface. And that gives rise to plankton blooms. And it keeps the plankton growing for longer. Those are the areas where fish and larger animals have learnt to find better foraging opportunities. So you're studying these ocean fronts. What are you looking at? We use satellites that are orbiting the Earth every day to map out the the sea surface temperatures. And over the years I've developed algorithms to automatically pick out and combine the locations of those fronts. So even though most of the ocean is covered by cloud, we can piece together a view of where these fronts are and simplify them so that you can see one line and then we can relate those positions to where the animals are. And what sort of animals are we talking about here? You mentioned the fish. Yeah, we've been studying animals from fish, basking sharks, dolphins, seabirds, all of the top uh, marine predators like seals, turtles. It's surprising how many animals and how many scientists we've found who are interested in relating where their animals are to these productive frontal zones. And one of the scientists doing that work is a PhD student at the Plymouth Marine Laboratory, Kylie Scales, who's also with us on the, on the rocks. What, what animals are you looking at? I've been using satellite animal tracking data to look at the movements of grey-headed albatrosses in the southern ocean, the northern gannet in the Celtic Sea and loggerhead turtles in the Mauritanian upwelling region, just some of the species that potentially might be targeting their foraging effort in frontal zones. And some of the species, I mean, they're pretty exotic places around the world, but some of the species around the the coast here include some of these, these big fish like basking sharks. Yeah, so the basking shark is the second largest fish in the world. 
And we frequently see them around the British coast, particularly around hotspots in the Isle of Man and around Cornwall. They forage primarily on zooplankton. So these areas where you get enhanced zooplankton abundance, like frontal zones, could be really significant features in the foraging seascape of basking sharks. And these are really curious-looking creatures, because, as you say, they are massive. But just the head, it's, it's enormous mouth. And even though they're massive, they're just eating zooplankton. That's right. Their primary foraging strategy is really just to swim along near the surface where you get enhanced zooplankton abundances with their mouths wide open and hoover up anything that might be in their path. And the point of this, Peter, is to relate these ocean fronts to conservation. Yes, what we've been able to do is, with evidence that we're building, such as Kyla's PhD, about the importance of these frontal zones to different animals we can then start to use fronts as a proxy for increased abundance or diversity of animals like dolphins and sharks and seabirds. For the UK effort to set up new marine protected areas, we were able to feed our data on the distribution of fronts and that's been used quite widely in the project to set up the boundaries of these protected areas to ensure that they conserve some of these pelagic animals. So understanding where these are, how they move, it's quite a big deal really. It is and now that we've done the work for the UK we're now collaborating with American scientists to to look at the open ocean because there's a lot of concern about how difficult it is to conserve the marine life out in the wide ocean and efforts are underway to start to piece together data that can allow the most important areas of the ocean to be protected. Peter Miller and Kylie Scales, thank you both very much. This is the Planet Earth podcast. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter to find us and to get the latest research news on the natural environment, search for Planet Earth online. Now, when you wake up in the morning, do you make a mental list of the day ahead? Well, if you do, you wouldn't be alone. Although in the past this ability to plan was thought to be unique to humans, recent research suggests that isn't the case. Sue Nelson's been speaking to researchers at the University of Birmingham who are developing a standardised test to investigate the planning abilities of different species. I'm stood in front of what looks like the prototype of a children's toy. It's about less than a a metre square, standing upright, A perspex glass, but on that glass are coloured levers. And if you imagine that child's toy, a wooden toy for a toddler, where you put a, a car at the top and it makes its way down, perhaps going from lever to lever, which might move on a pivot until you get to the bottom, then you've got a pretty good idea of what it looks like. Emma Tequin, who's from the Cognitive Adaptations Research Group, actually helped design this. Emma, I've described what it looks like. (laughs) Would you best describe what it actually does? I think that was quite an accurate description of it, actually. So what, what we have is levers on the front, but attached to those levers inside the box are paddles or seesaws, which pivot around the central point. And... The idea is that a animal or a child or someone who we wanted to test the planning abilities of could operate these paddles, these handles, and rotate them in an appropriate manner so that 
in the case of a child, perhaps a sticker, or in the case of a primate, a food item, would slide down to an open hole at the bottom. At the bottom, we have four possible holes that could be open or blocked, but in any given testing situation, only one of these holes is open. So the idea is that the test subject needs to look ahead, plan ahead, look where the hole is located, and therefore plan the way in which they turn these paddles or seesaws in order to get the reward from its starting position inside the box down to the open goal. You call the handles a paddle then, that's why it's, you've called it a paddle box. We have box. called it the paddle box, yeah. <laughs> well, let's get one of your colleagues, Kath, to come and demonstrate this paddle box. Tell me what Kath is actually going to do. Talk me through what Kath okay, will do. Okay, so there's lots of different ways that we can set up the paddle box. So an example of a more simple trial that we could present would be where all of the paddles are flat. So they're on three different levels. So we've got a row of three yeah. paddles at the bottom, then two, then three. Exactly. And so in this example, I'm going to put the um, reward on the top central paddle, and then the hole at the bottom is out of the four, it's second from the left. And now Kat is going to try and get this reward down from its starting position to the open goal at the bottom. Okay, Kat, I feel as though we ought to have some sort of music or something from some quiz show. To explain what you're doing as you're doing. You turned it left. Um, I've turned it left. And now, now it's on, on the, the next second level. Second I'm row. turning it left again. So it's now on the third paddle on the left on the bottom row. And you want to get it to the hole which is to, to the its right. right. So I'm turning it right. And there it goes. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, your reward there was a cube of sponge with a little uh, fun teddy bear sticker on it. Dr Jackie Chappell, you're supervising this experiment. What led up to this? Well, really what we were interested in was the way that primates, particularly orangutans, that spend most of their time in the canopy of rainforests, can make their way through the canopy, through this very difficult environment where they've got lots of branches, some of which are very thin, and obviously orangutans are very heavy, and they also have to cross gaps between adjacent trees. And that's a very difficult task for them because they've got to negotiate their way through all these branches and, and avoid very thin branches which might break under their weight. So we reason that there ought to be a certain amount of planning going on here. But obviously it's a very difficult thing to test in the wild um, because it's difficult to influence the route that orangutans might be taking and, and change various elements of it to see what they're doing. So what we decided to do was to see if we could set up an experiment with an apparatus that we could use in captivity where we could very directly control whether or not planning was needed in a particular task and also vary the type of planning. So the simple test that Kat just did was when um, the paddles start off flat. So you can do this one step at a time. So instead of pay as you go, it's plan as you go. You can turn one paddle and the others are flat so the reward doesn't go anywhere and then you decide what to do next. You turn the paddle that the food's on and you're always turning the paddle that the food's on. Um, and that makes it, we think, a bit easier because you're not having to look ahead and plan right from the beginning what you're going to do. We did have a, a, a more complex form of this task, so that one of the strengths of this apparatus is you can set it up in all sorts of different ways with different levels of difficulty for different subjects. And so if you set up a more difficult version of the task, you can set the paddles tilted to start with. That means that if you just turn the paddle with the food on it, the food goes all the way down like snakes and ladders and ends up 
trapped in behind one of the blocked goals. And that means then that you've got to look right from the beginning of starting the trial what you're going to do and how you're going to pre-position the paddles in order that you don't lose the food. And that seems to be much more difficult to do. Emma, you've been working with a, a, a local zoo. Yeah. What sort of primates have you been working on, specifically orangutans or others as well? I have worked with zoos both in the UK and the Netherlands and I've tested orangutans but also bonobos so they are the second species of chimpanzee so they're much more closely related to us than orangutan which makes for an interesting comparison if we're looking at the evolution of planning ability. And how did they do how did bonobos do compared to orangutans and did it make a difference in terms of whether they were adults or children were were adults better at doing this than, than children or vice versa? With the, the simple task that we presented that Kat just had a go at, they were all pretty good at that. Even orangutans as young as four years were performing well at that. So if you can imagine the orangutans kind of sitting behind this puzzle, it's smaller than the puzzle, and yet it's still doing really, really well at this task. On the other hand, the more difficult task we presented, where they had to pre-position some of these paddles before turning the one with the food reward on, bonobos perform particularly badly at this task. Orangutans weren't great either, but there were cases where they did succeed. And other aspects of their performance kind of gave the impression that orangutans were perhaps better able to consider the apparatus as a whole. They were paying attention to where the open hole was at the bottom before moving the paddle with the food on. So there did seem to be some sort of species differences. This project for you crosses two groups that you're a part of. One, the one we've mentioned, the Cognitive Adaptations and Research Group, and the other, the Locomotor Ecology and Biomechanics Lab. The Locomotion Jackie sort of referred to how they move through the, the forest canopy. But why do we want to know whether these animals plan or not? As humans, we are the ultimate planners. So from an evolutionary perspective, it's really interesting to try and investigate which other primate species might be able to plan. So we kind of now have an inkling that it's not a human unique capacity, the ability to plan ahead. But we don't really know to what extent other species of primates are able to do this. And by designing a task such as this, which is suitable for testing a number of different species, so as opposed to, for example, a tool-using task, I think it's really important when we are trying to investigate planning that we develop paradigms and tasks that are suitable for testing a number of species. And then we're going to get a more valid picture of how the ability to plan might have evolved. Emma Tequin, Dr Jackie Chappell and our Paddlebox monkey substitute cat. Thank you all very much indeed. Sue Nelson reporting from the University of Birmingham. Predicting major climate disasters such as the melting of the Greenland ice sheet or a shift in ocean circulation patterns is one of the major challenges facing climate scientists. Professor of Earth System Science at the University of Exeter, Tim Lenton, argues that triggers for significant change can be anticipated. His research on these tipping points was recently published in the journal Nature Climate Change. When I met up with Tim, I started by asking him what he meant by climate tipping points. Climate tipping points are are points at which a small change in forcing, uh, global warming if you like, can cause a large response in some part of the climate system. So it shifts to an alternative state. 
uh, often abruptly and with large impacts. In fact, I introduced the idea that there are parts of the planet that we might call the tipping elements, the bits of the planet that could exhibit this threshold behaviour where they might be pushed past the tipping point this century by human activities. So give me an example of a tipping point or potential tipping point. The Greenland ice sheet is one potential tipping element and its tipping point would be where you start to uh, lose more ice by melting than you gain by snowfall at the surface and then you start to go into an irreversible meltdown. West Antarctic ice sheet and also possibly the Arctic sea ice cover are also tipping elements. Then there are a whole suite of tipping elements related to changes in atmosphere or atmosphere-ocean circulation, including monsoon systems in India and West Africa. And finally, there's a set of tipping elements related to big shifts in biomes, which could be quite abrupt, and they include a possible dieback of the Amazon rainforest due to climate drying and a dieback of the boreal forests that cope the high northern latitudes, which seems to be related to uh, bark beetle infestation and a kind of epidemic that's a, a pathogen, a biological pathogen. Now, you're looking at predicting these be able to see them see them coming. I mean, how on earth do you go about doing that? Yeah, it sounds perverse because for most people when you hear the idea of a tipping point, you instinctively think, oh, that's fundamentally unpredictable. The amazing thing is there are quite generic properties of, of systems approaching a tipping point or a threshold that would hold for the climate, they hold for ecosystems, they may hold for people approaching an epileptic seizure... And specifically, we're looking for the property of slowing down in the, in the response of a system to the natural fluctuations it's subjected to. So a system that's becoming unresilient, if you like, or vulnerable, will tend to, given a particular nudge, and in the climate that means nudges from the weather that are all happening all the time, it will recover more slowly. And potentially also it will exhibit more variability under a given nudge as it's becoming unstable than it would do if it was in a nice stable state. And we believe we can see those signals. I've found them in past climate records approaching past abrupt climate changes. I found it in our climate models when I forced the model towards a tipping point like the collapse of the Atlantic Ocean Circulation. And uh, we're just in the process of looking for the same pro- generic signals in observational data of the Arctic sea ice cover. We've published suggestions that we see some of these signals there. So already there's been a tipping point in the Arctic. Is that what, is that what you're saying? I would use that language. I, yes, I, I would suggest that there's been, you might call it a more modest tipping point in the Arctic. I think some, something happened in uh, in 2007 that's been maintained since which has given us a different character to the arctic summers and there's all sorts of evidence starting to line up that there's coupling between the loss of the arctic sea ice changes in atmospheric pressure patterns and then this having knock-on effects to the climate and indeed the weather in in the latitudes where we live now that's still quite difficult science where there are many multiple causal factors but we're seeing some uh, tantalizing correlations between the sort of reorganization of the arctic sea ice cover and the arctic atmospheric circulation linking to more sometimes more cold winter extremes so some of our recent extreme cold winters it may have played a part in 
but also there's possibly some links to the very wet the wet summer we've just had and my colleagues at the Met Office are, are really doing the research on that. Tim Lenton from the University of Exeter and that's the Planet Earth podcast from the Natural Environment Research Council. I'm Richard Hollingham from a bitterly cold Plymouth. Thanks for listening.